My name is David. I'm the pastor here. I'm glad y'all are with us. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Revelation 2. Revelation chapter 2. So remember, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation have seven individual messages, each written to one of the seven churches. So John was to write this book, Revelation, to seven churches, and each one of them gets a personal introduction from Jesus. To, from Jesus. And, and what he's doing, I think, is he's putting their local situation into the broader context of what God is doing. So all of the book, including all seven letters, are relevant to everybody, and yet there's also this personal introduction that's kind of putting what's happening in our case today. We're going to look at Smyrna, what's happening in Smyrna in this broader context of what God is doing. Uh, we are going to look at the letter to the church in Smyrna today. I think it, it may be a difficult one for us to connect with. It's written to a persecuted church, and that's so different from the circumstances in which we find ourselves. It can be easy just to kind of observe it and look at it, kind of like you go to the zoo and you see something, but you're not necessarily engaged. Um, and we want to ask and, and, and make sure that we're listening for what the Holy Spirit would say to us, believing that there's something in this letter for us. That, again, all of Revelation is applicable to all of us. Revelation 1.3 says, Blessed is the one who hears these words from this prophecy, all of it, and takes them to heart. So Smyrna, last week we looked at Ephesus. If Ephesus is like New York City... The, the biggest city in Asia Minor, uh, the, the, the strongest economy, cultural hub, Ephesus, or excuse me, Smyrna's Chicago or Los Angeles, just, just a, a step, half a step below. Just a few less people, maybe 200,000 people. Um, very prosperous city, very proud city. They made their own coins, and they, on their coins they wrote first in beauty and size. They were, for our purposes, the two things to keep in mind is uh, the, the city of Smyrna was very loyal to the emperor. A lot of nationalism in the city of Smyrna. They were the first city to build a temple to the goddess of Rome. And they also competed with 10 other cities to build a temple to one of the emperors, and they won. So that was, I've, in my mind, that's like when our cities compete for the Olympics or the Super Bowl. They were competing to build a temple, and they won. A lot of, again, a lot of loyalty to the emperor and also the largest Jewish population of the seven churches, the seven cities that we're going to look at in Revelation. So a large population of Jews, a city that's very loyal to the emperor. So let's see what Jesus says to that church. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you, as, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So we said uh, last week that each of the letters follows the same pattern. So we're going to use that template to help us understand what's going on. Smyrna and Philadelphia are unique. They don't contain a word of correction. So all of the letters are addressed to the angel of the particular city, whether the church in the city, whether that's the pastor or a guardian angel. We don't know. It doesn't really matter in terms of interpretation, then Jesus 
is described using symbolic language. There's a word of encouragement. And then in all but Smyrna and Philadelphia, every other letter, there's a word of correction or rebuke with a word of repentance and a warning if the church doesn't repent. We don't see that with Smyrna. Then there's a promise to the person who overcomes, to the people who overcome, and then a call to take the message to heart. So we're just going to walk through that template, um, applying that here to this church, to, to, to this letter, written to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Again, whether that's the pastor of the church or the guardian angel, doesn't matter. Jesus is described as the first and the last. So that would be comforting. If you're, going, if you're in a church in a city where you're being persecuted and maybe things are feeling a bit upside down, it would be comforted, uh, comforting, I think, to be reminded that Jesus is, con- is in control, that he's sovereign. Again, he's the beginning and the end, and so he's the one who's holding all things together. If, if maybe people have already been killed for their faith, there definitely, um, there's a possibility that people could be killed for their faith. be comforting to know that Jesus is the one who uh, has died and has come back to life, and that as we stay connected to him, we can live. And so that's how Jesus introduces himself to the church in Smyrna. And then he gives the word of encouragement. He encourages them with three things. He says, I know your suffering and your poverty, and those two things are connected. And I know about the slanderous accusations that have been leveled against you. I know about the slander that's being, the slanderous charges that are coming from people who say they're Jews but they're not. They're really a synagogue of Satan. So those three things, suffering connected to poverty, one and two, and then slanderous accusations. That word suffering is really important. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. It's that Greek word thlipsis, T-H-I-L-P-S-I-S. It's throughout the New Testament. It's what Jesus promises all who follow him. It's, it's, it's a squeezing or a pressing together. It's used to describe the suffering or the difficulties people will experience because of their relationship with Jesus. It's translated as persecution, as difficulty, as tribulation, as hardship. But that underlying word is really important. It's really important, and it's, it's a theme throughout Revelation. This is already the third time that we've seen it. It's something to be expected. And Jesus says, I know that y'all are suffering. I know that you're experiencing difficulty because of your relationship with me. And one of the ways that difficulty is manifesting itself is in your poverty. So these aren't poor Christians. These are people who are poor because they are Christians. Their relationship with Jesus has caused them to suffer financially. They've either gotten fired or people are boycotting their stores. So there was a emperor, a Domitian is the emperor during this time, and, and during his reign, emperor worship became compulsory. So once a year, you'd have to take a little pinch of incense and go to one of the temples to Caesar and burn that incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Super simple. That's what all, if you lived in the Roman Empire, you'd have to do that once a year. And if you didn't, you could be killed. You weren't always killed, but you could be. That was the penalty for refusing to acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. Jews were exempt. They didn't have to do that as a people. Christians were not exempt. It was expected that they would do that. And if not, again, they could be killed. So maybe you can imagine in a city like Smyrna, where there's this strong desire to please the emperor, this strong sense of loyalty, kind of 
part of their identity as a city is we're loyal to the emperor. We want, we're the first ones to build a temple to the goddess of Rome. And we wanted to build a temple to the emperor. And we outcompeted these other ten cities to get that honor. Probably some pressure to go and burn that incense and say Jesus, excuse me, to say Caesar is Lord. And the Christians in general resisted that. They said, no, Jesus is the Lord, not Caesar. I don't burn incense to him. We worship the one God, Yahweh. And so for, for Christians to take that, to, to, to say those three words, to burn incense in that temple, would have been blasphemous. It would have been a rejection of Jesus. And so they didn't, in general. They didn't. And there, again, there's that risk that they may be killed. And I, I wonder if that was one of the things that marked them in that city, and if that was one of the things that led to their impoverishment. They weren't participating in this rite, and so many of them were ostracized. And then you have the Jewish community making slanderous accusations against them. I don't think that means they're just saying things to hurt their feelings. I think it means that they're saying things to the Roman authorities about the Christians, and those things are getting the Christians in trouble. Like maybe they're telling them who is not burning incense. Remember that the church grew out of the synagogue. So some of the people who are making these slanderous accusations are probably friends, at least used to be friends with some of the guys, some of these Christians, maybe even family members of some of these Christians. And so you have that in that setting, you have Jesus compassionately saying, I know what's going on. I'm not unaware, and I'm not unconcerned. I'm compassionate, empathetic towards what's happening. And then he gives them these two words of exhortation. That's not a word that we use very often. If you think of encouragement as lifting people up, think of exhortation as pushing people forward. Coaches exhort. They're urging people on. And Jesus gives them these two words of exhortation. He says, I want you to not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. And I want you to remain faithful even to the point of death. So I know what's happening. You're suffering, you're poor, and people are slandering you. And I want you in the midst of that, I want you to not be afraid. And I want you to remain faithful even to the point of death. What do I not want you to be afraid of? I don't want you to be afraid of what you're about to suffer. What are you about to suffer? You're going to be persecuted, there's that word again, thlipsis, for a period of time, 10 days. I don't think that's a literal 10 days. You can. I think it's symbolic. I think it's representative of a defined period of time where Jesus is sovereign over it. Again, he's the first and the last. So he knows the limits of this persecution that the Christians are about to undergo. He's saying, I, I know it's hard, and I think what he's saying is it's about to get worse. And I, want, I don't want you to be afraid. You're going to be thrown in jail. When we hear thrown in jail, we think punishment for a crime. You stole something and you get 15 years in prison. Usually, in this context, if you were thrown in jail, it was because you were either awaiting trial or because you were awaiting execution. So jail wasn't punishment for something you'd already done. You were, you were being held either for trial or for execution. And you can imagine, or I can how in that circumstance, fear would be a really big temptation. If I'm awaiting a trial, I can see why I'd be scared what's going to happen. 
Or if I'm awaiting execution, I would be scared. How are they going to kill me? Am I, how, how am I going to stand up to that? What's going to happen to the people I love? Fear would be, a, I would think, a pretty constant temptation if you're in jail in that, again, in that context. It would be, I mean, terrible to be in jail for being a Christian, absolutely. You, three years, five years, ten years, whatever it is, this is different. Again, this is a punishment for a crime. You're awaiting a trial. You're awaiting execution. I see fear as a constant temptation. And Jesus says, I don't want you to be afraid. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. The devil's the one who's behind all of it. Remember, you're supposed to pray for your enemies and those who persecute you. You're supposed to love them and bless them. It's not very easy to do when people are slandering you, people are boycotting you, people are getting you thrown in jail. Just remember the devil is the one who's behind all of that. Don't get wrapped up in the faces of the people who are doing it. And the result of this imprisonment is it's a test. Super interesting word. It's a test. A test is something that uh, determines, uh, kind of shows you what you're made of. Let's see the character and the content of your faith. That's what a test does. It's an experience that demonstrates kind of what's going on on the inside. That same word test is often translated tempt to entice or lure into sin. Very interesting. The same word can mean test or tempt. The most iconic test in the Bible is Abraham, Genesis 22. It's introduced. God tested Abraham. You remember the story? Abraham had waited for a son for 25 years. He has Isaac. And then Isaac, at this point, he's a teenager. He's old enough to carry a load of wood up a mountain. He's not a little boy. I think he's a teenager, maybe a young adult. And God says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham says, okay. And so he and Isaac go up this Mount Moriah with a load of wood and a knife and some fire. And Abraham builds an altar. And I think Isaac lays down on it. If he's 16, 17, 18, 20 years old, I'm pretty sure he can take his hundred and 20-year-old dad if he needs to. So I think he chooses to lay down on the altar and Abraham ties him there, pulls out a knife and he's about to sacrifice him and an angel of the Lord appears and says, stop, don't do it. How about this? 22-12. Now I know. That's what God says. Now I know. We don't think about God learning something. Now I know that you fear God because you didn't withhold your only son from me. Because this test it demonstrated the content of Abraham's faith. When Hebrews 11 uh, talks about Abraham, it says, verse 17, God tested Abraham. Let's see what that faith is all about. Let's see how deep those roots go. Let's see how strong that trust is. And by saying, sacrifice your son, God got to see. Now I know, God said. And now Abraham knew. So what Jesus is saying to these Christians in Smyrna, the devil's going to throw you in jail for some period of time. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to experience tribulation. You're going to be squeezed. And the result of that is a test. It's going to let us all see what's going on in your heart. It's going to let us see the content and the strength of your faith. Again, that same word, I think, I don't think the devil was trying to tempt, or excuse me, trying to test the Smyrnans. He wanted to destroy them. He wasn't interested in seeing the content of their faith. 
But that, that same experience that from God's perspective is a test, let's see who you are, can also be a temptation. And again, I think that temptation to fear had to be present constantly for them. And so Jesus says, don't be afraid. I want you to remain faithful, even to the point of death. Even if you die, I don't want you to recant. I don't want you to renounce your relationship with me, and you'll get the crown of life. And then to all who overcome, he says, the second death, the first death is physical death. We all experience that. Second death, eternal separation from God. In Revelation, that's pictured as a lake of fire. You won't be thrown into that lake of fire. You won't be eternally separated from God, even though you'll die here on this earth. Take this message to heart. In 155, 156, a famous guy's name was Polycarp. Not a name that has been passed down to our generation for sure. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. And he was martyred. We'll call it 155. He was 86 years old. Revelation was written, we'll just say 95, somewhere in there. So you can do the math. Polycarp easily could have been in the congregation in Smyrna when Revelation is read for the first time. And they get to this message to the church in Smyrna. And he at that point's what, at 20 years old. And he's saying, and he's hearing Jesus say, here's, about, here's what's going to happen in your church. I see the way you guys are suffering I recognize that. I want you to not be afraid. It's going to get worse. Don't quit. Remain faithful, and you'll receive this crown of life. Polycarp's 86 years old, and they come to take him. He's not surprised. They come to take him um, into this public arena uh, where he's going to be killed, and he's given an opportunity by the pro-council, the, the local leader, and he says, just recant. Deny Jesus. And Polycarp, 86 years old, says this. It's, he says, Jesus has been faithful to me for 86 years. He's never done me wrong. He says that. Jesus has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my Savior and my King? And they throw him on a pyre. He's burned alive. The flames actually don't kill him. They wind up having to stab him with a dagger to kill him. But this picture of someone who received the crown of life, this picture of someone who remained faithful even to the point of death. It's a living example of what we see here, and it happened right here in the city of Smyrna. And I do wonder how those words written to his church that he had and he could dwell on for all of those years, how those strengthened him in those final moments. So what about us? That's not where we live, thankfully. Most of us are never going to experience persecution for our faith. That's not, that's not reality for us. And it's difficult to imagine how circumstances could change in our lifetime in this country to where that did become reality. Honestly, for many of us, we probably wouldn't do great if things did become that difficult. It's just so different from where we live. So what would God say to us through this letter? Two things. One, I would say, is pray for the persecuted. You may not know this. According to Open Doors, there's an, there's an organization that looks at the church around the world. Uh, 245 million Christians live in that highlighted area, those colors. Those are the 50 worst countries in the world for Christians to live in. Those are the 50 countries where religious persecution is the highest. 
they face the things that we just read about. Imprisonment, beatings, torture. In those 50 countries last year, over 4,000 Christians were killed for their faith. Over 2,600 Christians were thrown in prison without a trial. Just, for their, just because they were Christians. 1,200 churches in those 50 countries were attacked. That's reality for 245 million Christians. And again, it's, it's so far removed from us. You may not know this. Missionaries who consider Stonebridge their home church, your brothers and sisters, are serving in some of those places. And you can pray for them. You don't have to pray for them every day, but you can pray for them. You heard Jeremy say from the front today, they covet your prayers. When you pray, you're asking God to get involved. That's not nothing. That's everything. Go upstairs after this service and grab a card. Get a card from one of those long-term missionaries and start praying. I don't care if you know them. You'll get to know them as you pray for them. Grab one of those cards and start to pray just once a week for one of those families. That's one of the ways that you can, be, uh, that you can honor the message to this church in Smyrna. They need to be strengthened. Imagine if God called you to one of those places and your heart's desire was to see these people come to know Jesus. That's what you wanted more than anything else. These people need Jesus. And you grew to love them over the months and the years that you served. And you knew that when they said yes to Jesus, they very well may be, they're risking their lives in order to say yes to him. That could, that's not an easy place to be in. The news that we most want you to accept may cost you your life. And it's reality for those 245 million Christians. They need prayer. Our missionaries need prayer. And the, the fledgling churches in these countries need prayer. I just read something yesterday in Algeria. There's only 125,000 Christians in Algeria. That's it. And the government went in last week and closed down the three biggest churches. Just because. A 700-member church, a 600-member church, and a 100-member church. They just put a wax seal on the door and said nobody can enter. That was after they ran everybody out and arrested the leadership. Just because. And that's, again, reality for 245 million Christians. We don't... Again, that's, that's so far removed from us, but you can begin to pray, and that's not nothing. It's a significant step in supporting this church, these brothers and sisters uh, who are in desperate circumstances. Begin to pray. And the second thing I would say is you can prepare for persecution. We want to pray for the persecuted, and we want to prepare for persecution. Again, most of us, we're never going to experience persecution, but we are going to suffer. That word flipsis that we've been talking about. Jesus says you're going to experience that, John 16, 33. You're going to experience that as long as you're in this world. We're not going to be persecuted for our faith, but we are going to suffer. And we want roots that are deep enough that when difficulties come, we don't quit. We want to have a faith like Polycarp that says, I've been following Jesus for all these years, and he's never done me wrong. How am I going to, how am I going to turn my back on him now? How am I going to blaspheme my Savior and my King? We want to develop. Uh, there's, I've told you all before about this lady, Jackie Pullinger. She's a missionary to Hong Kong. And she says, what God wants are people with soft hearts and hard feet. And what he gets are people with soft feet and hard hearts. And what we want to do is we want to develop those soft hearts and those hard or those tough feet. 
In the parable of the soils, Jesus says there's people who are going to respond to the gospel initially with great joy, but when difficulty comes, when that word thalipsis, when that comes, they're going to wither and die because they don't have any roots. My nightmare scenario is that that happens to us. That if things ever get hard, and they will at some point in your life and at some point in my life, that it comes to the reality is we're faced with is I wasn't necessarily following Jesus. We just happened to be walking in the same direction for a period of time. And when things get difficult, I don't have the roots that are deep enough or you don't have the roots that are deep enough to withstand that squeezing. How do you develop tough feet? We're not Navy SEALs. It's not commando training. How do you develop tough feet? There's some spiritual practices that you can begin to engage in that will strengthen your faith. It's just like going to the gym or going for a run. You're, exer- you're training, you're exercising your physical muscles. You can exercise your spiritual muscles. And for where, where most of us live, you never have to exercise either one of them. And you certainly don't have to exercise your spiritual muscles. It's easy to be a Christian in Marietta. And so, and like, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. I'm not moving to any of the stands. Like, I'm glad to be here. But it can lead to spiritual apathy and flabbiness. And so when I'm squeezed, I don't have roots that are deep enough. I'm not, my faith isn't strong enough to get me through those difficulties. I've talked before about what I feel like in Marietta is a super effective discipline is fasting, intentionally saying no to food. We don't have to say no to anything ever. And to intentionally say, I'm not going to eat breakfast on Tuesdays. I'm just not going to do that. Not necessarily because it's Lent, but just as a way of saying, God, I recognize that my stomach is not the boss of me. You are. That I don't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from your mouth. Just that little bit of self-denial. I'm not, this isn't dieting, and I'm not asking you to be a martyr. I'm just offering a, a practice that's been passed down for centuries as, here's a way of strengthening your spirit and denying your flesh. And there are other ways. I would say serve. Find a place to serve that doesn't benefit you. It's great for you to serve in the places where your kids are receiving and are active, that's great and it's good and it's right. Is there a place where you're serving that doesn't accrue, where you don't accrue any benefit from? And maybe even a place that's a bit more difficult from where you live. I think everybody should go on an international mission trip. There's a few exceptions, but I would say everybody needs to go on one at some point. There's something about going. It expands your perspective and it softens your heart. But there are things, there are places that you can go here in Marietta without driving very far where you can begin to serve and, and be among people. And it can, that, again, it's one of the ways of kind of toughening your feet, strengthening those muscles, denying yourself. Other thing I would say, and it's the most important, is it's not just about making your feet tough, it's about making your heart soft becoming more tender to the love of Jesus, that ultimately is what gets you through. It's not because, again, you're some kind of spiritual Navy SEAL. It's because you've been so convinced of the goodness of God and the great love that God has for you and others 
you know he's the pearl of great price. And so, like Polycarp, you say, how, why, how, how can I do, how can I deny him? He's never done me wrong. And that just come, that comes the way you think it comes, by spending time with him, asking for the Holy Spirit to do in you what Paul prayed in Ephesians 3. Strengthen me so I can grasp how wide and high and long and deep is the love of Jesus. You begin to pray that, your heart gets softer. He does become the pearl of great price. At the same time, you're strengthening your faith through regular spiritual disciplines. You're developing roots that are deep. So when you are squeezed, and you're going to be squeezed, you're not going to be thrown in jail. You're not going to be beaten. But when you're squeezed, whatever that happens to look like, whatever the trouble that comes to you, your roots will be deep enough to withstand. Let's pray. We're going to try to get done here just a couple of minutes early. I really want you all to go upstairs and check out those tables. You've got a couple of minutes, and a lot of you have to get your kids, but you'll have enough time to swing through there and then go pick them up. So, Holy Spirit, without any sense of guilt, I pray that you would move in our hearts. I pray that we would all develop roots that are deep so that when we're squeezed, when we experience tribulation, we stand firm. And God, we pray for the 245 million who are being persecuted, who do face the threats of imprisonment and loss of employment and even death. We pray that you would strengthen them and those who are working among them. In Jesus' name, amen.